I am Pastor Chris, and today I have the privilege of delivering today's message. Before I start, a disclaimer and an announcement. The disclaimer is I might completely fall apart up here, and you might see an ugly cry. Uh, the announcement, um, for those of you who know me, you know that while I love people and getting to know people, uh, I don't like being touched by people. Um, unless they are in a very small inner circle, hugs are extremely awkward for me, and I pray that they never happen. But today, I am suspending that rule and allowing anybody who wants to give me a hug to give me a hug. It, Except for maybe you, Brett Zarger. You hug hard. It's just a grip. All right. She was born on November 2nd of 1755. She was the 15th of 16 kids. And by the age of 15, she had married the future heir to the throne. And by the age of 19, she was promoted to queen. She became known for her flamboyant style and her over-the-top hairstyles. She, she loved the finer things, but she also enjoyed high-stakes gambling and outside-of-the-box partying. And this became the subject of so many tabloids. Everybody wanted to know what was going on in her life. What was the next scandal going to be? Some historians actually call her the original Kardashian. But before long, poverty struck the land, and her lavish lifestyle became the thing of criticism, where, where people were looking at her, wondering, how can you live like this? And in one of the worst PR moves in history, when asked about the rising cost of bread prices and the inability for peasants to buy that bread, she is reportedly said, let them eat cake. This ruined her public image, and as the revolution continued to rise up, she found herself, well, not safe where she was. She reached out to foreign dignitaries. She asked them for help. None of them would help her, so if she, she eventually fled. She ran, but she did not get far before she was captured. And then on January 21st of 1793, her husband, King Louis XVI, was executed. And then nine months later, after a 15-hour trial for treason, Marianne Antoinette was also sentenced to death. And there she was being walked up to the guillotine in a very public setting for her life to end. Everybody was on the edge of their seat waiting to see this celebrity, the last queen of France, die. And everybody began to wonder, what are her last words going to be? What is it that she is going to leave the people with? How is she going to defend herself to everyone? Those last words? Excuse me, I did not mean to do that because she stepped on the executioner's foot right before the guillotine went down and so history records those as her last words. Last words can make or break a legacy. A few more examples. About 15 years before Marianne Antoinette, there was Voltaire, a French writer and philosopher and known critic of the church. And the church decided that he needed to die, and so he was going to be put to death. 
the priest about to, to, to give him his last words before he went, asked him a question that Pastor Dan has actually asked here at Call Pray. We ask it as our baptism. He turned and he asked him, do you renounce all the forces of evil, the devil, and all his empty promises? To which he responded, now is not the time for making new enemies. A more modern example. 1966 convicted murderer, James French, that's his name, James French, was led to the electric chair. The guards asked him if he had any last words, to which he replied, Hey, fellas, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. And one final one from 1995. I absolutely love this. Another convicted murderer named Thomas Grasso was asked what he wanted for his last meal. Now, this is a tradition in many states, and, and they usually try to give whatever is asked, and usually it's a pretty high-end item, a, a steak, a lobster, something fancy. But I guess Thomas, well, he gave a long, very random list, and apparently they did not get it perfectly right, because right before he went, these were his last words, I did not get my SpaghettiOs, I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. Can you imagine being the marketing guy at SpaghettiOs? Waking up the next day, what do you do with that? Last words can make or break a legacy. So today, as I knew I was going to be giving my last message as a staff member here at Call Prairie, I began to think, what are my last words to you guys going to be? What, what am I going to leave you with? And I stressed and stressed and stressed. And I hit a dead end, no pun intended. And uh, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what I was going to say. What am I going to leave you guys with? In fact, we had thought about me finishing the series that Pastor Dan has started entitled Like It, Love It, Hate It. Uh, but I would be doing the last message in that series, preaching about dealing with people you hate, which while a Christian thought might not be the best thing for me to go out on. And so I stressed and I stressed and I stressed and I hit a dead end. But then I thought about the most meaningful last words in my life. And to tell you about those last words, I need to introduce you to someone. See, I had a plethora of grandmas growing up. I had two living great-grandmas and three living great-grandmas that I saw at various holiday settings. But I only had one grandpa, Grandpa Huggins, or as his co-workers affectionately called him, Huggy Bear. Grandpa was amazing. We, uh, we had a lot of fun together. In fact, my very first memory in life is as a three-year-old marching around in a circle in the house with my grandpa playing on toy instruments until my mom and my grandma yelled at both of us to stop. At one point in life, I remember they lived in a house that had the steepest backyard in the history of the world. And Grandpa thought it would be a good idea to set up the slip and slide. Uh, this probably should have got a call to Child Protective Services, but I loved it. And I loved him. And earlier in his life, he had felt the call to ministry. 
to preach. And unfortunately, due to life circumstances, he wasn't able to totally fulfill that calling uh, to make it a full-time career. So when I felt the call to ministry to preach, there was an instant connection there. He instantly became my biggest cheerleader. Every time he knew I was going to speak somewhere, he was there if he could be, or calling and emailing if he couldn't, giving me the encouragement I needed to get up there and to share the good news. And he had this phrase he would use. You know how people uh, will tell you to, to give them hell. Sorry, Dad, I cussed in church. Grandpa changed that up, and he would always tell me to, to give him heaven. And then, when I was a sophomore in college, I got a call from my mom telling me that I needed to come home immediately. Now, it was the week before finals, and they wouldn't give me a clear reason, and so I knew it was something pretty serious, and I, I remember making that five-hour drive. I remember showing up at the hospital and walking in and seeing my grandpa, who was usually full of life on life support. He had gone in for a pretty routine operation and something had gone tragically wrong. And he was in a coma-like state. I stayed up all night. I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would, would, would bring him back, that I still needed my grandpa, I still needed my cheerleader. But for whatever reason, God did not answer that prayer like I wanted him to. And that next morning, we gathered around his bed, and I had the honor of reading Psalm 23. And then the life support was turned off, and Grandpa Huggins, Huggy Bear, went home. And in mourning that, in trying to, to come to terms with it all, I remember thinking about what his last words to me were. And I remember that he had sent me an email. So I opened my Yahoo Mail inbox. And, uh, and there it was. The last line of the last email. Next time you preach, give them heaven. And over time, those words have become a mantra for me. They've kept me going when things are hard. They've taken on new meaning. They've become deeper. They've become an essential part, a foundation in my faith. Next time you preach, give them heaven. And so as I thought about sharing last words with you today, I thought about no better words to share than this right here. And the way we're going to structure this sermon is we're going to divide it up into two parts. And to divide them, we're actually going to use my second favorite punctuation mark, the comma. Just in case you are wondering how cool I am, I have a second favorite punctuation mark. Now, some of you might be dying to know what the first is, and it's the ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. And I'll tell you why. I love a sentence that ends with an ellipsis. Because it's this idea that it's not over. There's still more to come. To be continued. Dot, dot, dot. And I always tell people that any story that involves God is a story that ends in an ellipsis because the end of the story is not the end of the story. But anyway, we're going to talk about a comma today. We're going to focus on what's on the first half of that comma. Next time you preach. 
Now, this part of the sermon might not seem super relatable because many of you, most of you, will never preach. Most of you will never stand up here and do what I'm doing right now. Some of you, the very thought of doing that is terrifying. Is that anybody here? And so you might think I can just zone out for this part. I can check my phone, write it off, see what notifications I have, and pick up the sermon a little bit later. So to keep your attention, I've decided I'm going to show you something. Feet. Beautiful feet. It's getting weird, isn't it? In preparation for this sermon and making this slideshow, I had to Google pictures of feet. Don't ever do that. Also, my search history and my Facebook ads will never be the same. Let me share why I want to talk about feet, and in particular, beautiful feet. It's because of something Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, preaching isn't about standing up here. It's about going out there. It's about moving your feet and living your life. In fact, one writer says it like this. You can preach a better sermon with your life than with your lips. Pastors aren't as loud as they used to be. People aren't flocking to hear pastors preach. They aren't turning on the TV or the radio to hear a sermon. But they hear you. They see you. They live alongside of you. And your life might be the only sermon they ever hear. Whether you like it or not, you are a preacher just by being a Christian. So my question to you is, what are you preaching? What are you preaching? And to answer that, we're going to move to the other side of the comma. Give them heaven. Now, my parents are here today. Um, where are you guys at? Would you raise your hand. Give a big wave. They've put up with a lot, so can we give them a hand? Because of them, growing up, I went to church a lot. Whether I wanted to or not. <clears throat> and because of that, I heard a lot of speakers and guest speakers. And was guest at other church where I also heard their speakers and guest speakers. And most of those speakers were Baptist. And Baptists like to do this thing. They like to end their services with an altar call, an opportunity to come forward and accept Jesus, which is not a bad thing to give people an opportunity to commit themselves to the faith, to give their life to God. That's a good thing. But there was always this weird way that they liked to introduce it. They would often begin, if you died tonight, 
on the way home from this service. Or if you died this morning on the way home from this service. I grew up thinking that the ride home from the service was the most dangerous drive any human could ever take. But if you died on the way home, do you know if you are going to heaven or hell? And I understand what they're doing. I understand the heart of this question. It's a desire for people to have everlasting eternal life with God through Jesus Christ as our Savior. I get that. But when we do this, when we end with this question every time, there are some unfortunate side effects. Salvation, the faith, can be reduced to a get-out-of-hell-free card or a ticket to heaven. And, and what can happen is, is we become so focused on life after death that we forget about life before death. We're so focused on whether we're going to heaven or hell that we forget that the faith, salvation, is also for the here and the now. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom, he does this kind of crazy thing where he says the kingdom of God is near, but the kingdom of God is also here. We're living in it. We have the ability to live in God's kingdom right here and right now. See, Jesus wants to give us life. Jesus doesn't want us to die for him. Jesus wants us to live for him. He died for us so we could live for him. Now, if we die because of him, we become a martyr, and that's an okay thing, but he wants to give us life. In John 10, he actually says, I want to give you life and life to the fullest. Or as one translation says, he wants to give you a purpose, a rich and satisfying life. Not after you die, but here and now, because you can already live in the kingdom of God. And I wonder what would happen if we began to end our services with that invitation. Not to get a ticket to heaven, but to begin to live in heaven right now. It makes me wonder, what if Christians spent less time trying to get people to heaven and more time trying to get heaven to people? What if we made the world more like God created it to be? What if we built the kingdom here, heaven on earth? And I mean, isn't that what we pray as a church every week? May your kingdom come, may your will be done as it is in heaven. So then the question is, how does this look on a practical level? How do we do that? And to answer that, we're going to turn to the words of Jesus, because we do that. I talk about the meaning of last words. Well, the words we're going to look at here were actually one of last, uh, Jesus' last teachings. It's not long after this that he was turned over to the Roman soldiers and the process of his execution began. Before long, he would be on the cross. 
But while he was still with his disciples, he was offering them these teachings. And Matthew decides to make this one of the last teachings, one of the most monumental teachings. And I want to share that teaching with you today. It's in Matthew 25. And it begins with this interesting little Greek conjunction, but. A lot of translations leave this out, but I think this is a very important but. And if I was still doing youth ministry, I would totally laugh at the fact that I just said that. But I'm far too mature for that now. I will not laugh at the important but in the Bible. No, I love that it begins with that. Some translations use the word moreover. It's kind of this idea that you've heard about living one way, but I tell you this. Now that I'm here, this is the way that I want you to see it. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world, heaven and earth. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then those righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you thirsty or give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? Or when did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? To which Jesus the King replies, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters, you were doing it for me. So who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about those on the fringes. He's talking about those on the edge of society. He's talking about those who don't know if they have a place in the church. I once invited one of my high school friends to come hear me preach, and she hasn't gone to church in a long time. And she said, I would, but I'm afraid that when I walk into the doors, I will burst into flames. And while I know she was joking, I also know she wasn't joking that there was a true fear there. So who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about those on the fringes, those on the edge of society. It's the minority family who wonders why no one else in the congregation looks like them. It's the queer couple who can't find a safe place to worship. It's the trans kid who just wants a group of friends. It's the twice-divorced single mom doing sex work to support her two kids while going back to school. It's the hungry, homeless ex-felon trying to prove to the job recruiter that he's worth a chance. It's the little boy, it's the little girl in Zambia who just needs clean water. It's everyone who's ever looked at a church and wondered, is there a seat for me? That's who Jesus is talking about. The fringe, the edge of society, those who wonder if they can walk through those doors. That's who the kingdom of God is for. That's who needs heaven on earth. And the question that I want to ask you guys is, are we going to give them heaven? Are we going to give them 
heaven. Now, this is the part of the message where I'm going to make it awkward. It's my signature move. <laughs> I love you. I love you guys. Over the past seven years, you have gone from being my church to my congregation to my family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are more like my crazy uncle in Christ, but still family. I've grown so much here. You guys know my daughter, Ollie. Ollie, would you stand up for a second? If you've been here lately, you might have seen her working in the cafe. She's one of the best baristas our church has. Ollie has literally grown up here. You can sit down now. I know you like the attention, but you can sit down. When she first walked through those doors, she was a geeky-looking three-year-old with pink glasses. And now she's a slightly rebellious 11-and-a-half-year-old. I've grown here. She's grown up here. And I love you guys. And I wish I could continue this journey with you. I wish that more than anything. And I'm still figuring out what's next for me. There's a couple opportunities for me to maybe go back to youth ministry. There's a couple opportunities in the tech field. I'm going to start a YouTube channel so I can have a creative outlet and continue to teach. But at the end of the day, I don't know where I'm going to end up. At least not yet. But here's where I want you to end up. I want you to end up as a church that continues to change lives with Jesus' love. I want you to be a church that goes out into the world and tells everyone from the mainstream to the fringes to the edges of society, there is a seat for you. There's a seat for you at this table. I want you to be a church that helps people trust Jesus, grow disciples, and bless others. That's where I want you to end up. Just this past week on Twitter, I saw a tweet from Ryan Berg, a researcher. He was talking about church attendance, particularly here in Kansas. He said between 2008 and 2020, church attendance in Kansas dropped from 37 to 24%. People aren't coming to church. It got even worse after the pandemic. So we're going to have to take church to them. We're going to have to give them heaven. The reason people aren't coming to church is because in many ways, Christians have destroyed their reputation. So many people associate the church with pain and trauma and rejection. My friends joke with me because no matter where I go, people end up spilling their religious trauma to me. 
I'll be getting my hair cut. Somebody finds out that I'm involved in the church and now they're telling me stories about a, a bad church camp or a time that they were told that they don't belong. I can't even go out with friends. Sometimes I'll be in like a bar. Dad, I don't go to bars, but hypothetically. And I'll meet a stranger and somehow they end up telling me their story of how the church caused them pain and trauma and rejection. The church has not had a reputation as a place that shares faith and hope and love at good news. And here's the hard truth of it. Our reputation isn't going to change because of a Super Bowl ad. It's going to change when we change. When we become the kind of church that gives them heaven. And that's where I want you guys to end up. I want this to be that church that goes out there and brings church to Lenexa, Olathe, Shawnee, even DeSoto. I want you guys to change our city, our state, our country, our world. That's where I want you to end up. That's the kind of church I want to see Call Prairie be. So guys, next time you preach, give them heaven. <laughs>